0: Hey there, welcome to the Heavy Hole, my name is Tom
1: Oh, hey there yourself, don't judge me just because I'm wearing pajama pants It's Big Will, aka Uncle Big Casual You look comfy, I, I'm very comfortable, thank you We'd have to assume Justin is also comfortable uh, He's comfortable enough to not be here tonight, what's he doing? Ridiculous the Guy's just lounging, he's probably wearing the Zubas. I can never remember, Zubaz? Zubas, the Zubas the, yeah Yeah. I Sometimes I close my eyes and I pretend my pajama pants are Zubas. Pit Vipers, zubas. Yeah, I can dream. I can dream mm. of being as fly as Justin. No, big shout to Justin. Couldn't be here on this episode. Justin's a very busy man. He's yeah, he's been like getting a lot on.
0: of work recently, yeah. and um, you yeah, that's the curse of freelance. You cannot plan for these.
1: Things. He does not sell drugs. That's no. crazy. Let's not go there. Okay. He, no. he could, but he, he doesn't. Listen. Uh, well, uh, we yeah. We all could. We all could be. We all could be doing more. <laughs> that's right. We all could be hustling harder. Allegedly. No. Listen, Tom. Take me there. How was your weekend? Quick. Weekend was good. I uh, went to a
0: fantastic wedding. Shouts my cousin Ali, uh, where I got pretty
1: toasty. Everybody's getting married. Do you guys just get married just to have part of a party? I got a lot of cousins. Okay, all right. So uh, yeah, that's my liver
0: doesn't like me again yeah. because you know you start day drinking all that crap. It was a great time. Uh, the following day, I went to my first musical event since the lockdown.
1: Okay, was it Shootout NYC? It wasn't. Okay, shout and, to, um, big shout.
0: I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it was, honestly, it was Rufus Wainwright. Uh,
1: uh, the name is in there somewhere, but it's not Klingling and a Bell. He's, not-
0: uh, he's a, um, I think he is best known for that cover of the Leonard Cohen song in the Shrek movie, Alleluia. Oh, um, whoa. He's like this songwriter guy from Canada, and, you know, my fiance loves him. Uh, he puts on a good show, but I also saw some irony in that that I'd been sitting there in the Paramount in Huntington mm. with, in a seated section going, I
1: was... Yeah. Yeah. Well, as long as you enjoyed it ironically, that's the hip thing to do.
0: I enjoyed it sincerely, so, so kill me. Whoa, 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 um, whoa, whoa. Kill me now. I,
1: I'm not killing anybody. Nah, he's a I good singer-songwriter, but I
0: did feel out of place. I'll say that much.
1: What's that? You, you filled out a plate.
0: I filled out. Yeah, I fell <laughs> out of place.
1: Yeah, I filled out a plate. There, a little V. Yeah. Shout to Little V's yeah, Pizza. Shout to uh, Shout to Euro Deli of Kopek on on Oak Street. I went. Did back. you go know
0: that? That's where you you f- filled out your plate.
1: I was out of the game. I was out yeah. of the game. I was out of the Polish uh, uh, fine uh, deli food game for They're a few months for you, there. I went back. Back in the game. Got my fresh kielbasa, my potato dumpling. I got pierogies. Nice. I got the frozen pierogies. I got the fresh pierogies. I got the hot sauerkraut. I got the cold sauerkraut. I'm in there. Good. In like Flint. You know, you need, because sometimes when you have uh, a diverse plate of influences, sometimes unexpected, you come out with something uh, that maybe people don't get at first. Maybe it takes uh, a little bit of uh, absorption. Into the old cerebellum, you know, before it really clicks with somebody. I don't know, you know. Maybe there's something mysterious going on that people didn't even know was inspiring. I don't know. What well, I'm crazy. I'm in my pajama pants. I'm half asleep. I'm delirious. I haven't slept in 48 hours. I'm sorry. I'm happy for you. Tonight's guest, a man, Jamie Bailey, who along with his brother Mike Bailey, crafted the band Brodekin and their singular... Uh, blasting guttural sound, which may have some influences that you may not be uh, particularly uh, uh, spry on. Uh, in your observations, too. sir. Mm. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna talk to him and get to the bottom of all of this, and it's gonna be in English, not French. I guarantee you. Wee oui, wee. Oui. Big Will from Heavy Hole Podcast, joined by my loyal co-host, Tom. Yep. Big shout to our co-host, Justin, who couldn't join us this evening for this interview. But our special guest today is none other than Jamie Bailey, uh, longtime bassist and vocalist of Brodekin. How are you, Jamie?
2: I'm good, man. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks to all of you for for having me as part of the show. It's great. Our pleasure, man.
1: Yeah, uh, it's uh, by by longtime listener request, and we got a shout-out at the top, Paulo Paguntalan, uh, of Miasmatic Necrosis and all of his other projects, um, who was instrumental, no pun intended, in uh, um, getting us in touch with you, as he was with your uh, former bandmate, John Angman, um, who we, we got to remind the listeners, if you're interested in what we're going to be talking about or what we talk about in the course of this episode, you can go back to our interviews with John Engman, with Matty Way, and even when the first time Paula Paguntalan was on the show, his Ping Part 1 episode I believe he probably talked about Rodokin um, a, a lot. So just to to clear things up right at the top, but uh Jamie, thank you very much for your time and for joining us.
2: Yeah, of course. And Paulo, you know, he's a great guy, as is Peron. you know, both from P two, great dudes. And I actually uh I actually heard that interview, the one you're talking about being part one. Um so I'm I'm familiar with that and yeah, we've known him for quite a while and he was, you know, the man that brought us up to New York, you know, a couple of years ago. I say a couple of years ago, it's hard to remember anything pre COVID now, you mm, know, but yeah. uh it's been a couple of years, but yeah, he' great dude,
1: great guy. Yeah, I was I'm, I was fortunate enough to be at that show. Um, you know, we we didn't know that we wouldn't that we wouldn't be having as many shows. Uh, you know, with COVID around the corner, man. So I'm glad I caught that one. Um, but, right. But as we reminisce on the past, um, you know, we usually start start at the top and we go all the way back. So uh, you know, the listeners know where I'm going. Uh, we always ask the guests, are you from a particularly musical family? Are there other musicians in your family? And Brodekin fans might already realize that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, your brother is Mike Bailey, the long-running guitarist of Brodekin, right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Absolutely. He's the, the guitar player. He, uh, he's the guy that started the label on Match Brutality. Um, that's all him and and yeah we do kind of come from a, a musical family on my mom's side my grandfather was a big time musician he played all kinds of stuff although the style of music was extremely different of course he was much more of a, blue, a bluegrass country player um, but as kids we came up around like you know acoustic guitars banjos mandolins things like that so we were always kind of grabbing onto them and just you know we didn't know what we were doing but we were just kind of you know, just getting used to the feel of it and going from there. And, and he was a big, um, a big factor in, in, in our pursuing music. He was always extremely encouraging. My dad also played guitar um, off and on. But uh, he, so there was always an instrument around the house. And at some point in time, I want to say Mike was probably, because Mike started a bit before I did. I want to say he was probably about uh, 10 or 11 years old is when he started actually, you know, playing guitar, like, you know, looking at it as something he wanted to do. Um, and then it just kind of all happened from there. My grandfather, like I said, he, he ended up buying us our first, you know, cheap, you know, basically pawn shop guitars. But I mean, my God, you're a couple kids. You're not gonna go out and spend any kind of money on this because we might, you know, not be into it in six months or whatever. But yeah, that was the, the, the family history with music there. All his brothers, my grandfather's brothers were all musicians and we were just surrounded by it as kids.
1: Hmm. Uh, I mean, was it the type of thing where you just bring out the instruments when family is over? Or were they, like, performing live uh, in in concerts or things like that? No, it's
2: pretty much... No, it was pretty much like uh, like just family get togethers. Him and his brothers would get together and just start playing and, you know, everybody was just hanging out while that was happening. And then when we would go over to visit independently from these, you know, family get togethers, he had a little room in the back of his house that was his music room where he stored all of his instruments. And Mike and I would go back there and just, you know, start plugging away on the guitars or whatever, just basically making noise, but you know, trying to get an idea of how mm-hmm. these things work.
1: So uh, well, let me ask you this, because we have uh, have a series of Patreon listener questions that I'm going to be asking you through the course of the interview that kind of fit in with the narrative. And the first off the bat is Eric Ruthig wants to know, what is the metal scene like in Tennessee and the South in general? Now, the South in general is a big, wide-loaded question right there, but uh, if I got it correct, you guys are from Knoxville, Tennessee, Um, And I was just going to ask you, was there like a heavy metal scene to speak of when you were getting into music as young men?
2: So Mike and I, we're not originally from Knoxville. We moved down here later on uh, in life. I was born in Monroe, Michigan, and Mike was born in Toledo, Ohio. And then later on through my dad's job, we ended up moving down here, which we've got a tremendous amount of family down here, which is kind of how we ended up here. After he worked with a company for so long, they basically said, where do you want your last transfer to be? And he said Knoxville, Tennessee, because there's a a huge place here that he worked at in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. But uh, the scene here when we got here was not not really anything to speak of. There there were some bands that were more like um, more like thrashy bands or more Pantera-esque, if you will. And then we, we kind of came across uh, Besieged, and then we came across Inner Self, which were the only two um, death metal bands that I can remember that were doing anything, you know, playing local shows and maybe even some regional stuff, but nothing serious, you know, just, just some, some stuff around the area. Um, and then we met some other guys, you know, from... Alabama like there was a flesh ties and spine cast we met those guys uh, and and, you know some others in different parts of Mississippi and New Orleans but in the beginning there wasn't a whole lot going on to be honest
1: and um, could you maybe just take us through what was it your brother first or or like who starts getting into heavy metal as opposed as opposed to what's just commercially available in terms of music
2: so let's see. I would say, I don't know. We got into it about the same time, if I remember correctly. The first death metal that we ever got our hands on was um, "Spiritual Healing by Death," mm. uh, and when we got a hold of that, we we basically bought it because of the cover. Mm. You know, we had no idea what we were getting into, um, and at first, you know, it was like one of those things where Mike was into it instantly, and and, and I it took a little bit longer for me to digest what was actually happening you know like what's going on here and then from that we ended up getting into Morbid Angel and Obituary and then just everything kind of you know dominoed from there um, and, and you know before that we were into like you know some of the classic stuff you know Metallica Megadeth you know Iron Maiden and things like that um, so you know walking around a record store I think Mike's probably the one that noticed the album cover and you know drew my attention to it and so we picked it up and then that kind of was the beginning of, of all of it, to be honest. Okay,
1: and before we go much further now, um, I mean, metal in general, there's always been a, a big connection between a lot of heavy metal and history and historical events and a fascination with history and things like that. Um, but it, I think it's safe to say that you've taken it a, a little bit further maybe than your average metalhead. Um, so, so, and could we get into that a little bit just before we get off and running with Brodekin? Is there a lifelong fascination with history, with maybe the darker parts of history or anything like that, that you say predates, uh, Brodikin in your life?
2: Sure. So, you know, going back to like just using Iron Maiden, <clears throat> excuse me, real quick as an example, you know, they had some songs, you know, Alexander the Great and some others that were very, you know, Kind of had a historical edge to it and it was intriguing to me that a band would do something like that because let's face it you know a lot of kids when they're in school history is like one of those subjects they're just not into and they'd rather be doing anything else other than history but for me history was always something i was interested in i kind of got it from my dad uh because of family history he was big in the family history my grandmother was huge in the family history um so we had a lot of this genealogy kind of done and we could trace family members back through you know different parts of canada into france and germany and, and this and that um and then we you know we also had family members on both sides of the civil war and fought in the revolutionary war so i was just into history in general uh as i got older i started digging into as you said and correctly so i think is the darker side of history you know and iron maiden in fact you know it's like iron maiden what's that What's a band name? Well, actually, no, it's not a band. And then I was like, oh, wow, there's something to this. And so that kind of sparked an interest. I think that interest probably really laid dormant for a long time. But when I first started going to school, I actually was going to school as a history major. And a lot of the stuff that I was focusing on (laughs) was like medieval Europe. And it just when the time came, you know, that we were going to do something like this to me it just seemed like a no brainer to go into something that was you know absolutely you know evidence based like super dark brutal era mm. makes sense um
1: and okay so so your brother and you are um uh, you, you know you get that spiritual healing record you're getting further into death metal uh, is there a band for either of you that predates Brodekin a high school band or anything like that?
2: Yeah, we had uh, Mike was in a couple no name bands. They never had a name. Just garage type bands trying to do a couple things. Then the the first band that we ever had that actually had a name was kind of like you know almost like a Pantera style band because we were working with what we had here and. The concept of blast beats was not something that was really well known here. So you know you're doing what you can, and we had a band called Hollow, and we put out a couple of demos with that band. Um, and then of course, it, you know you know how it is when you're starting out and have a couple of bands you're going through. It didn't work out. Those members went off to do their own thing, and then we splintered off to do our own thing. And that's how actually how we ended up getting with uh, with Chad was Chad was playing in Inner Self at the time. Uh, Knoxville death metal band, and we met him. Um, he actually had come out to a couple of the hollow shows and we became pals and started hanging out. And then we started going to shows together. You know, we went and saw Angel Corps and Cannibal Corps in the South Carolina. We went up to the Michigan Death Fest together and, uh, you know, things just started working out in that respect.
1: Okay, man. And I just got to stop you real quick. You're talking about Enter Self before you mentioned Flesh Ties and Spinecast. You're hitting a really specific pocket of Southern death metal in the nineties for me right here. Cause yeah. I, re- I remember mainly from like compilation appearances and stuff. Some of those bands, man. Okay. Uh, maybe sure. I got to do a little bonus yeah. episode to, 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 cast some light on that. That's cool, man. Um, flesh ties. I, I especially remember flesh ties had some really, really great material. Uh, but, but getting yeah. back to, to Brodekin now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you and your brother, like you say, you cut you guys kind of peel off from what was going on. Um, I mean, at right at the start, is is Brodekin um, as brutal a band? Are you writing that sort of like really brutal material with, you mentioned Chad Walls, um, uh, your original drummer, if I got it right, right?
2: Yep, that's correct. Yeah, Yeah, right out of the gate when we got together and decided that we were going to, you know, kind of join up, the three of us, we just were going for the most brutal stuff that we could come up with. You know, we were just trying to be as fast as possible and as heavy as we possibly could be. We all had that kind of uh kind of vision if you will
1: okay and you know i want to get into maybe some of the um some that vision like you said and uh the another listener submitted question that kind of hits on that um right here is the the patreon listener i'm gonna say anti-toy uh, Anti-Toy,
0: uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, Anti-Toy. Uh, brodekin has a really influential sound. What are the key albums that inspired you to make brodekin such a heavy and brutal-sounding band? So maybe if you could get into some of the albums <clears> that predate brodekin that were influential on the three of you when, it, when things were first starting.
2: See, I remember we listened to, in, in the early beginning there, I remember we were listening to a lot of Angel Corp's. Um, we were listening to a lot of gorgasm. Uh, let's see what else was constantly being spun. Uh, a lot of laughters of humanity actually was being played. Mm. Uh, dead infection, tra- you know, chapter of accidents yeah, was being played.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, let's see what else. And but then also, there was also a decent amount of black metal that was being played yeah. too. You know, yeah. we were definitely listening to stuff from Mayhem. Uh, you know, Thunderbolt. You know, all all kinds of stuff. It's it's hard to say for me personally though. Gorgasm was a, was a big deal. Uh, that, that, was a, that was a big one for me. Oh, also, um, Nile had just really kind of hit. Uh, they had, okay. uh, I'm so bad with album titles, but they had Nefron Ka, which was brand new at that time, mm-hmm. and Chad was actually friends with Pete, the drummer of, of Nile, so there was a little bit of a like a, like a cool connection there. We would go on and see them a couple times. Back in you know, the original lineup when Chief was on bass and vocals, and, you know, going way back. So so all those definitely played a role, without a doubt.
1: Okay, and well, the flip of that, you kind of touched on it already a little bit there, because I, I want to get around to the black metal part. Um, Andy Sung, yeah. another listener, Andy Sung asks, uh, has other genres besides death metal been influential to Brodacan? And if so, what non-death metal bands have been the most influential to you? Um, so Andy Sung asked that, and also in our John Engman interview, John mentions kind of meeting you guys at an early death fest when he was still in Feetopsy and bonding over um, you both kind of being into black metal, if I got that right. So maybe could you just touch a little bit more on the black metal um, influence that c- comes into play and cuz at the death people may not realize even the younger listeners at that point in time in the late 90s especially in the United States in the brutal death metal scene it was not fashionable at all to be into black metal
2: no definitely not you're 100% right about that i mean i'm sure you remember there were some shirts going around you know, at that time mentioning, <laughs> you know, you know, it was definitely not a positive thing. Mm-hmm. For yeah, to be a of course. Fan of black metal. <laughs> Some rude verbiage. Uh, but yeah, so we, uh, we, we you know, we were listening to everything. We were listening to, you know, Marduk was there. Mayhem was there, you know, Immortal, uh, Old Man's Child. Um, let's see what else. Thunderbolt, I think I already mentioned them. Um, just numerous ones. Norge uh, oh, gee, just, just tons of stuff. Uh, And what happened was, we played in Ohio Death Fest when we met John Ingman. And Mike, at that time, on the guitar he was using, he actually had a Mayhem sticker on that guitar. And Ingman came up, he was a fan of the music, because he had instruments of torture. And so he came up, you know, just to say, hey, you know, hey, how's it going, blah, blah, blah. blah. But then, the Mayhem sticker kind of got a whole different discussion going. And as you know from talking to John, you know, he has a very, very deep well of, of music he listens to. Very obscure things, and so it was, it was really kind of cool to run into another guy that was in the scene that that was also you know I don't want to say not afraid but 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 not concerned about discussing blackmail. You know, there was no kind of you know weirdness about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, man. and and it's funny because I. I was a teenager um, uh, in the, the late 90s into the early 2000s, so like I kind of didn't realize it at the time. I didn't know anything about music at the time. I just liked brutal, guttural death metal, and I kind of branched out later sure. on. Um, but looking back now and reviewing the earlier Brodekin albums, in the context of... Uh, a black metal inspiration and I'm not trying to paint you guys as a black metal band or something crazy no, I'm just I'm just fa- no, I get it. I'm just kind of fascinated by that angle of it because I never realized it but it makes a lot of sense especially from the drumming angle that kind of constant blasting percussion and yeah. your riffs. Um, the the way the riffs kind of uh, uh, just kind of fuzz together in the background sometimes with this blasting. Is that like, uh, would you say that comes more from, from like the black metal part of like trying to create that sort of atmosphere and soundscape as opposed to maybe your more choppy, um, like progressive, uh, traditional death metal type of thing?
2: I think so. I, I think that we all definitely shared um, Chad would have been probably the least into black metal than, than Mike and I were, but he did really appreciate and enjoy the speed of it, and that was a big element for us. Also, the fuzziness, like you're talking about, and then kind of from a you know the historical elements, I kind of could get into that from from a black metal standpoint of like bands like 1349 and things like that, and so that kind of touched. There, were, there were definitely is black metal all over everything we do. Every single album, all the way from the beginning till now, there's there's definitely black metal influences.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely, and I think that especially maybe with some of the imagery, um, the the logo. Mm. Even if I'm not mistaken, um, our our listener Tyler Hammer asked "Where did the inspiration of the lyrical and visual themes of Brodekin come from?" And I think we're kind of getting into that right now uh, with like the kind of like old like wood cutting looking things and the. Um, the logo it, itself. Could you actually speak to maybe just a little bit about the specific logo and the specific imagery you used on the early albums? Like where you obtained them, and if there's any specific stories behind those that are like more more personal to you than just a, a, a cool picture for a death metal album.
2: Sure. Yeah. Like so, what ended up happening with the logo is, you know, when we first got together, you know, like a lot of bands, they don't have any idea what they're going to call themselves. You know, we had no idea, and we were probably together for you know, three or four months before we actually settled on on the name. And again, going back to being big in the history, I pretty much have a a small library of books. Now, some of them have pictures in them, some of them are just all text, you know. Some are in foreign languages, which I can't even, I can barely read, you know, but I can definitely get the gist or or do some translation stuff with, with a little bit of French and a little bit of German. But with the logo for us, we felt that it needed to be something that looked the part. It needed to look like it could fit with some of the woodcut images that we use. Obviously, you're not going to have something that fits with everything, but we wanted to kind of have that flavor and in a kind of a, a different way, like, you know, so many Brutal Death Metal logos, especially now, you know, are super harsh. They're very, very aggressive looking. And what we wanted to do was kind of make the logo be a little bit approachable. And yet the music kind of wasn't approachable, if that makes any sense. Like you know, to the unknowing person oh well what's this, this looks kind of pleasant and then the music is a little bit different than maybe the logo is suggesting so it's kind of a surprise really and then actually in the beginning when it came to the, um, the artwork, when we used the artwork for Instruments of Torture, you know we caught a lot of flack in the beginning from people because it was like what is this why is this black and white, you know they didn't understand that it was a woodcut or they just thought it was kind of stupid because it was black and white and you know it wasn't you know all splattery and this and that but to us, it was absolutely perfect, and it was exactly the way we wanted to go, and kind of wanted to portray ourselves in the scene.
1: Uh, absolutely, I mean, I, I personally, I love, uh, and I'm sure you, you do too. You know, Wes Ben Scotter and John Zig and uh, yeah. Mar- Mark Riddick, and those, yeah. those guys were huge right at that point in time, in the late '90s into yep. the early 2000s. So you guys really did kind of set, set yourselves aside visually. Um, just by taking a different path uh, with all that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, you know, something different. And and that was, you know, what we were going for, though. We wanted it, we wanted to be different, kind of, in as many respects as we possibly could. You know, granted, you know, you're doing blast beats. Well, of course, other bands are doing blast beats. Of course, you know, you've got low vocals and other bands have low vocals. But when it came to that initial first impression, when someone has, you know, whether it be the CD in front of them or somebody walks by wearing a T-shirt or whatever... We really wanted that first impression to be something totally different and unexpected in a lot of ways.
1: Now, something that br- that brings to mind is um, you, you got you, you say that there really wasn't much of a regional scene at all to speak of um, at the time when you started Brodekin where you were in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, so I, I, you know, you can't really say that there were a lot of regional influences. I would imagine. What I'm getting at. Is that kind of uh, isolation in terms of a, a music scene that you guys were creating Brodekin in? Uh, would that, first of all, is there a parallel in that to the way a lot of these uh, European black metal bands um, existed, the way that they were kind of isolated in their uh, existence, you know in the wilderness and the Scandinavian countries? Do you see a similar type of isolation and like the band kind of coming of coming of uh, age within itself within a bubble? Um, is there something there or am I reading in too much?
2: No, I think that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought of it like that, but now that you bring it up, I mean, regionally, you know, we had we had friends like Steve Green at Comatose and Lust of Decay. You know, we, we had people around us that we knew that we would play shows with and stuff like that. But when, when you look at it, kind of how you're talking about it, putting it into that light, the three of us only hung around with each other. Mm-hmm. That was it. You know, we we didn't hang around with anybody else. We would go to work or whatever, you know, we did during the day and we would all converge at the practice space. We'd hang out there all night. You know, We'd play for X amount of time, go to a, a local CD shop and hang out, maybe hit Taco Bell, you know, on the way home or something. And that was what we did like every day. We just hung around only with each other. So there was a certain amount of isolation there. And you know, not everyone in this area is into this kind of was into this kind of music or now is into this kind of music. So when you are kind of walking around, you do kind of look like the outsiders in all black with some crazy shirt that no one can understand or, or relate to. So, yeah, I mean, there definitely was a certain, you know, parallel there. Don't you mention it? Because, again, we just hung around with each other all the time. That was it.
1: Okay, um, and you know, I, I want to get into um, a, a few things about your albums. When we talk about your first album, Instruments of Torture, which you released uh, in, independently on, on Unmatched Brutality, if I got that correct, um, it's, okay. it, it says recorded at Digital Sky Studios in Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina. Just trying to jog the, the memory a little bit, because our listener... Uh, Liam Raptor asked What was the recording process like for Instruments of Torture and other albums of Brodekin's initial active era? What influenced the overall sound those albums had? So was, We won't do every album all at once but just for Instruments of Torture uh, if you could take us back a little bit to that Digital Sky studio in South Carolina and the recording process, how you got some of those sounds, that notorious guitar sound um, and just yeah. so, just any recollections
2: yeah, it was actually, you know, I'm trying not to laugh about it because it was such a bizarre and just kind of funny situation. So the guy that recorded it, Mike's guy, was a friend of Chad's. Chad had known him for a number of years. And when the time came that we were going to go ahead and record, he said, well, hey, let's, let's go to this guy. So we said, okay, well, you know, let's go to this guy. Nobody knew anybody else, so let's go to that guy. So when we get there, uh, basically this guy has his, his house, and um, he is also in a band, <clears throat> more like a hard rock heavy metal band but all of his band members live in the same house so we get there and we're looking like okay where are we going to record this thing at and we ended up setting up in his living room you know and recording the instruments individually in his living room it was totally insane because there was tons of background noise and at any moment while you're in the middle of recording something you know any number of people could just all of a sudden come walking through the quote unquote studio while you're doing your thing it was you know if somebody opens a refrigerator or something you gotta cut You got to start over again. There was no, you know, there was no technology at that studio, uh, if if you want to call it that, to do any kind of punch in, punch out. It was all just one shot, one take, one go. It was it was kind of hilarious when I look back on it.
1: Okay, man. So uh, and just uh, some people have inquired about the guitar sound. I don't know if you want to give it away, even um, Mm -hmm. of course with respect to your 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 privacy. But people maybe like if you remember the gear and the actual guitar. Uh, I know you're the bass player, but, um, you know, if you yeah. if you can
2: recall. If I'm not mistaken, Mike was using an Ibanez RG470, I think. I think that's the model number that he was using. And the pedal he was using, I think he was using um, a metal zone going mm. into a Marshall valve state, if I'm not mistaken. Of course. What else, man? What else? Of course. Great. That's, that's-, that's, 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 that's- yeah, that's what I remember for the guitar. You know what I mean? Like, that's it was extremely bare bones. You know, yeah. it was just the pedal. I mean, he had a tuner pedal, but that doesn't count for sound. You know what I mean? There was nothing, no addition to his distortion there. So, was, you know, he had some kind of uh, he had the distortion running on the, on the valve state, of course. And then he was tweaking whatever was going on in the metal zone. But it, that was it. I mean, that was just it. And then we mic'd the cab, and that was it. I mean, that was just, <laughs> you know, super, super bare bones, easy as possible. And oh. then you get that weird, weird
1: sound. <laughs> okay. And um, now what about getting out and, and playing live uh, with Brodekin? Was there a lot of that in that era um, with that first album, or did that come a little bit later?
2: <clears throat> um, we did a few shows off the first album. We did a couple down in Atlanta. Um, a friend of ours, Evan, who, who ran Deathgasm Records, he is the one that, that booked those shows down there. We did a couple in Nashville. A um, couple down in Florida and Alabama with the Flesh Ties guys. And then we played over in, in South Carolina, you know, Lust of Decay and, and some of those guys over there. And then I think the second album, when we got the Festival Death, it was more like we got out a bit more. So, the, and well, no, actually, as a matter of fact, we did, um, we played Castle Heights on Instruments Torture. We did that. Oh, wow, man. Up yeah. In New York.
1: Yeah, we got, yeah. That's... We sure did.
2: And, and Paula was at that show, actually.
1: I yeah, I, you guys are cooler than me because I unfortunately missed that. But Castle, Castle Heights, uh, I, I do speak of sometimes. I was there a lot when I was a teenager. That's that's uh, that's awesome, yeah. man! Wow. Any any memories? Was that your first experience coming to New York City?
2: Yeah, that was my first experience in New York City. Yeah, um, yeah. So that was kind of kind of crazy. We didn't know huh. what to expect other than it being you know a huge city, and uh, yeah, we rolled up in Chad's van and. Park right in front of the club, and that was that. <laughs> was it with Dehumanized? Uh, no, I don't. You know what? I don't think we've ever played a show with Dehumanized. Unfortunately, that who was at that show? That was man, that was going way back. I can't remember who played that gig. And oh. then we played there a couple years later with um, with Morg from France and Vomit Remnants from Japan. Oh wow, awesome um, man! Yeah, I List, can't remember who was was
1: there. Me and the listeners are salivating at these old school lineups that you would kill for now. <laughs> that was bad. Like it's like, right? what, Like, Maryland Death Fest tier bands just playing regular shows. You know, it's
2: just yeah, right. Or, or you know, you look back at the old Ohio Death Fest flyers. You know, exactly. And you're just like,
1: oh my god exactly well it, uh, the only reason I brought up Dehumanized is because they played uh like a lot of shows at Castle Heights usually when the touring bands would come through so um but I got gotcha. you but uh yeah but move, moving on with Brodekin um you know we talk about uh your your second album then um festival of death which did have a slightly different sound but I noticed was still it was recorded again um with uh it was Mike Sky you said yeah yeah uh, same guy. Uh, but yeah, I, same guy. Yeah. But I believe at that point he moved to a different studio setup in, uh, in Florida, it says?
2: Yep. Yep, he was in the uh, Daytona Beach area at that time. And that was um, a lot nicer uh, setup that he had there. Again, it was in his house, but it was, the whole band wasn't living in the house at that time. It was just him. And he had you know, basically two bedrooms in the top floor that were side by side. and He made one room his control room where the board was and all that stuff. And then the other room is where we would record. You know, Chad did his drums first, then Mike did the guitar, then I did bass, and I did vocals. Uh, Probably the most memorable thing about that was trying to remember exactly what song it was that Mike actually recorded bass on, because I had to go to the hospital. Um, We had a. It was a great time recording there because again we knew the guy; he was a good friend, and you know we would just hang out at night, record all night, and get up late and go to the beach to start the day off. You know, come back, put it on the grill, watch some Seinfeld or something, then go record all night. And something, I got into something at the beach, and I had like a crazy allergic reaction. And so Mike and Chad ended up taking me to the ER one of the nights, and they gave me a prescription for something or other. But I was like itching uncontrollably, and there was no way I could play. So Mike actually ended up playing bass on the last track of that album. Wow. (laughs)
1: That's interesting. Now, when we speak of that album, is there anything that you were going into the second album saying we'd like to change this from how the first album came out?
2: I think the, the biggest thing that we were going for was, was speed. We wanted to push <laughs> the speed envelope as, as far as we could. Um as far as everything else goes, you know, as far as the tones and things of that nature, once we got there, we kind of were leaving that up to Mike, you know, the, the, the engineer. Like, you know, what's what do you think we should do here? What do you think we should do there? Um, and, and kind of looking at his expertise, if you will, to, to help us navigate that. So, you know, we would definitely take his advice or try this or try that. And, you know, some things worked and some things didn't work. You know, I, at one point, I think Mike's guitar was just way too trebly and we had to dial it back. Cause I mean, it was like, you know, you couldn't even tell what was going on at all. Like it's hard enough as it is, but it was just, you know, there was nothing there. Um, but that was about it, really. I mean, we just really, even the whole songwriting structure, speed was like the number one priority. But then we also did some things that were a little more, I don't I kind of hesitate to use the word technical. But technical uh, in some parts, as far as the drum rhythm with the guitar, you know how they kind of tied into each other. Okay, and from um, uh, from there,
1: your your next official release, if I got it right, was the four way split um, with uh, aborted uh, drowning and misery index on Bonesburg Grade Records, right?
2: Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I think that was that
1: was right after that. Yep. Yeah, in 2002. Now, why I bring that up, I, I do want to get on, get on to, your, to, to the later eras and stuff like that. But the reason I point this out mm-hmm. is you said something interesting before about being in, inspired by um, uh, Dead Infection and uh, maybe some of the more like mm-hmm. like European gore grind that was popular at the time. What I remember in the late 90s is that like bands like uh, CBT from Germany, Dead Infection, Regurgitate, especially when they got signed to relapse, but even before that, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Hemorrhage from Spain. All these bands, sure. all of a sudden, in a way, crossing over into the brutal death metal scene, in a way. It seemed like... Uh, it predated the Maryland Death Fest era, but it seemed like Gore Grind and Brutal Death Metal kind of found each other in the middle. Death Metal kind of grew into the guttural vocals and brutal era. I call it the United Guttural Records era of the late 90s, and it seemed like that wasn't as far sure. a cry anymore from Gore Grind. With you doing that four-way split, Bones Brigade Records, just for the listeners who are interested in the history of Gore Grind, Uh, Bones Brigade Records from France, if I got it right, is like a kind of cult gore grind label. Could you just speak to maybe how you hooked up with that and any thoughts you might have on that crossover of European gore grind and American brutal death metal?
2: Yeah, I I think you're right on, on the crossover. I think that was about, you know, right around that time. And to me, it made a lot of logical sense, you know, because... Both sides were doing their own thing, and, and they really could kind of play well off each other. You, know, you didn't have to be exclusive. You didn't have to be exclusively death metal or exclusively gore grind. You can take certain elements, merge them, and even come up with something even more brutal, more insane. And you know, a good touch on United Guttural, because you're right about that, that was an insane label back in the day. They had all kinds of crazy bands on there, and Rich was a, a heck of a guy. Rich in the beginning was a huge help to us. Yeah, uh, you know, because he was doing stuff with the uh, Milwaukee Metal Fest, the magazine, and things like that. You know, he interviewed us and in that. He was the first guy that ever bought anything off of us wholesale to have as part of his distro. Huh. It was fantastic. Uh, I mean, let's see what we we'll, go. Oh, back with Bones Brigade. Mike had been in touch with the, the dude from Bones Brigade for a while. They had traded back and forth. You know, for the labels for distros, and um, I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember exactly how that came up. I just remember Mike uh, presenting it to us like, "Hey, do you guys want to do this split?" And we are like, yeah, of course. You know, ab- absolutely. But yeah, you're right. Bones Brigade's another a fantastic label from back in the day. I-,
1: I always remember them putting out this really weird band, Running Guts, from the late 90s. Yeah, absolutely. Obs- obscure stuff, man. <laughs> it came in this weird cardboard box, this tape. Okay. But um, yeah, we could reminisce all, all night. But yeah, I, just, I wanted to touch on that a little bit, because right. that's something else that struck me in the late 90s was all of a sudden you were seeing like cock and ball torture t-shirts out of like dudes from the midwest death metal scene and stuff you know it was a thing yeah. and, you know and i feel like waco jesus maybe kind of comes out of that a little bit too it's it's a whole it's a whole mix That's, up yeah no i can see that that makes
2: sense absolutely so well but
1: getting back to brodekin now I, i'm glad we touched on that with the split um but the the next release that comes out then is Prelude to Execution, which is of course the like the infamous uh, uh, two song EP, which is the first release with John Engman on drums,
2: right? Yep, that's right. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, res- we decided that uh, we wanted to we wanted to give everybody you know a little a little taste of you know hey we're, we're we're still doing something things are fine you know check this out this is kind of the way we're going, and we actually recorded that at John's uh, friend's place named Tim. And that was a really, really cool experience. Again, another little house studio, if you will. Two bedrooms, basically.
1: Okay, and that is a, that in particular, there was a question that um, Paulo had. Uh, it came up, I think, in the John Enman interview about how the, the, the guitar, I guess the panning and the mixing went more mono as opposed to stereo on, on um the the first two albums. I guess that E P in particular has a very like mono kind of guitar mix. Do you do you would you agree with that and was that a conscious decision?
2: I would yeah, I would agree with that. I don't believe it was a conscious decision. <laughs> I really don't. I don't I don't recall that at all. I remember, you know, we everything was recorded and everything was done and um what ended up the happening was Mike and John were at the studio for the mixing. I was not there. I had to work. Not that if I were there, it would have sounded any different. So I want to make it sound like, you know, whatever's wrong or <laughs> right, is right. their fault or, or whatever's right is, is on there. You know, You're you know not I mean? pulling a Mark just, Wahlberg. I hear you. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right. It's just something that kind of happened, you know. It definitely wasn't a conscious decision. Unless, you know, I mean, who knows? Again, I wasn't there. I don't know what Mike and John talked about.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, uh, well, well, speaking of what... Um Mike, just going back one more question, because I'm looking here. We do, Paulo himself submitted a few questions for this interview, and one of them happens to be mm-hmm. first of all, one we breezed over. Did Gore Grind from the classic 90s era play an influence in shaping right Brodekin's sound? I feel like we've addressed that soundly, no oh. pun intended. But his yeah. other question yeah. he says, What percussion does Mike play on instruments of torture and festivals of death? I guess Mike is credited with some form of percussion on those albums.
2: Yeah, so Mike was. Uh, what did he do? I'm trying to remember. He played. I think that, you know, because we made a joke out of it. Really, you know, it was it was, it was meant to be just kind of like funny. But he did the uh, the vibra slap on the end of Infested with Worms. Oh. Okay, <laughs> that's what he did. And then he did the gong on uh, Festival of Death. You hear it kind of warming up. You know, it's a, it's a kind of a low rumble. And then boom! It splashes in, and and the song takes off. So he yeah, he did. You know, one on each album, yeah. But, but it was always, you know, kind of, like, funny. And then I think, honestly, that was Chad's idea to um, to list him as percussion and have him play those parts. Okay. Fiber
0: slap is genius. I love that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that's something that we were doing anyway. Like, we were legit doing that in the practice room. You know, I don't know. It, like, it, don't take it like it was written that way. I think Chad just hit it one night at the end
1: of the song and we were all laughing about it like oh okay let's let's do that and uh, that's just how it's done. <laughs> okay all right so so now now moving on we, to- we we talked a little bit we gave the listeners a prelude to prelude um, uh, to execution but uh, we we know from list from our interview that we did with John Engman that um, he he was in feetopsy he meets you guys at the Ohio mm-hmm. Death Fest and he eventually relocates to Knoxville to uh, to be the drummer of Brodekin, right?
2: Yep, that's right. Yeah, we. What happened was that the Ohio Death uh, Fest. He gave um, he gave Mike a, a demo, a tape, and I, I think it was his uh, the black metal band he was in, and I want to say it was the Cold Beyond, but I could be wrong about that. But anyway, it was it was the black metal band he was in at the time, because again, we were all talking about black metal, and we listened to it on the way home of us and we thought it was you know fantastic, and it just kind of sat on the shelf, and. When the time came that we needed to, you know, find a drummer, being where we're at, so difficult finding people that are are even into this kind of music, let alone being able to blast at the speeds we would want someone to blast at. Um, I mentioned to Mike, I said, hey, you still have that that cassette, right? We need to listen to that. So we broke that tape out and we listened to it, you know, probably two dozen times, just over and over and over again listening to it. And then we contacted John, went up to uh, to jam at his place, and played for the weekend, and then that was that. And eventually, you're right, he, did, he moved down and was down here for a while. Um, he was actually living with Mike. And then he got an apartment not too far away from where I'm at, like five minutes from me.
1: Was that, I mean, was, was there like a weird, was there like a kind of like growing pains, you know, like was it kind of like awkward with that situation to have somebody relocate um, to, to your area where there's not a huge metal scene, maybe not a, a big... Uh, support system for him. You know, he's relying on you guys as his con- contacts there and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, I think there was a certain element of it, of it being tough. You know, I mean, that was he's a long ways away from Milwaukee, being in Knoxville, Tennessee. You know, that's a heck of a ways away. And we were the only people he knew. And he, he was coming from an area where, you know, a lot of shows came through there. The record store he worked at was really cool. They had all kinds of, of releases from Everything under the sun, and down here it's just not like that. So, there was a big adjustment period for him. And you know, I think that you know, Mike and I did our best of trying to keep them entertained. I don't want to make it sound like we are babysitting, that's not what I mean, but you know, like keep them entertained and, and kind of like into what's going on around here whenever something was, but it definitely was tough. I, I get it. You know, I moved around, Mike and I moved around numerous times you know, through our life and uh, as kids and stuff, and I know how tough it is moving, and I know, I'm, I'm sure it was tough on
1: them. Yeah, it's, you know, just for the listeners who might be new to the podcast who want to go back and check out that John Engman interview, uh, you know, he also talks about just when he was in Fetopsy, even before Brodekin, those guys didn't live particularly close to one another either for rehearsals, if I remember correctly. Um, so John, John really sticking it out. Um, and mm. a, and as we know, John's been through quite a bit. Um, you know, we'll get into his uh, his kind of trials with, with physical issues as a result of playing drums. But be, before that, we mentioned the Prelude to Execution EP, uh, and I want to get to Methods of Execution, but can we just talk a little bit about playing live in John Engman's era of the band? After you recorded that EP, did you get out there more? I know you guys eventually would play the... Uh, the Fuck the Commerce Fest in Germany and the first uh, Maryland Death Fest was that before uh, your album Methods of Execution came out?
2: Well, let me think about that. I think it was probably right after okay. it came out. Uh, if I had, if I'm thinking about it correctly, that, that seems right to me. I think so. We played the Maryland Death Fest, and it was kind of an interesting situation because you know everyone that was in the know, so to speak, that was following the band knew we had John, but. I don't know that they were really ready for John. And what I mean by that is he was so different on stage. You know, we went from from purely visual, right here for this part of it. You know, Chad had an enormous drum kit. You know, it, it was just massive. You could barely see him behind the drum kit. You know, and that's cool. That's what he was into and it looked cool and, and that's great. John is like the polar opposite. You know, he had this little bitty drum kit and you could see everything he's doing. And And I think when he really would start digging in and tearing into it, and blasting as fast as he was, a lot of people were in awe. I remember specifically at the Maryland Death Fest, a huge crowd of people getting as close as they could to the side of the drum kit to watch him doing what he was doing. So that was kind of interesting, a a different dynamic than we had seen before. I mean, don't get me wrong, lots of people did watch Chad too, because he was doing some crazy stuff back there. I don't want to take anything away from that. But I think that was the, the first time I noticed a large group of people just trying to get as close as they could to see the drummer. At least the drummer that we were on stage with at Lenny.
1: Yeah, and, and John actually talked about buying a big kit with two kick drums and the works when he first joined Brodekin um, because, you know, he, he kind of had to like follow up Chad as a drummer and eventually scaling it all the way down to his minimalistic kit.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean he really he really didn't strip it down. I don't think that... Um, the larger kit was not in use very long. And I mean, he kind of was like, you know, is it cool if we do? And we were like, yeah, I mean, we you play whatever you want to play. I mean, I don't care what you're playing. You know, as long as you can play, I don't care. It makes it makes no difference to me, man. You know, so I think that was, that, and that's John. As you know, you've talked to him. He's he's a, a minimalist kind of guy. You know, he likes to streamline everything. So he probably did feel pretty uncomfortable behind a, a large kit. I, I can totally get that.
1: Okay, and Um, Methods of Execution, now your third full-length in 2004, comes out on Unmatched Brutality Records. Again, your uh, independent label that you guys operate, that your brother Mike's operating. Um, Now, Mm -hmm. respectfully, uh, is, is that intentional that you guys always put out your own albums... Um, were you know I, were there offers from from your underground death metal labels at the time, and you guys always had a vision of keeping everything to yourself, or was it out of necessity?
2: So when we first started, it was out of necessity. You know, we're a brand new bands. You know, what are we going to do? So, boom, that's how Instruments Torture come out. Festival of Death just followed up. But that being said, in the beginning, there was a, a repress, uh, Ablated Records, you know, Brian Baxter from mm-hmm. well, Ohio Death A yeah. um, Ablated did a repress of Instruments Torture. And we thought, okay, well, that's we'll, cool. We'll just stick here with Ablated. And as things went on, we just felt it was better just to go our own way. So that's why Festival ended up being on Unmatched and Methods of Execution. Was on, on mentality. We kind of we kind of like just having control of everything ourselves. Um, now that's not to say we wouldn't work with a label and there were offers that came along. we just didn't you know it was just just wasn't for us that was the way the offers were coming in. We just felt it was better just to keep it kind of under our roof so to speak. Um, but yeah, we have nothing against you know other labels. we would definitely entertain everything we, ha- we have in the past. It just wasn't something we were interested in okay
1: uh, yeah fair enough just a, just a question and it just speaks to kind of like um, nowadays with bandcamp and all these streaming platforms yeah. it's a lot easier for bands to put out their stuff independently you know but you guys were doing that even back then and, and kept you know all through with with your albums um, yeah now and, and and being able to license uh, different formats and stuff also comes in handy you know you're not really tied down you can just do cool yep. limited runs here and there if you exactly. want
2: exactly you know. Um, so yeah, that's exactly right, and again, like I said, you know, we we're not anti—we're definitely not anti any other label. It's just at that time when things were kind of coming in, the offers that we were kind of getting, we thought, well, you know, I don't think that this is really worth it. None of us thought that it was really worth it to sacrifice the control or whatever for what was being offered. So, just kind of, you know, yeah, it was kind of necessity in a lot of ways—necessity slash choice, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, that's that's always that's, that's always part of being in a band. Um, that's right. So, you guys, you, you said that you played the first uh, Maryland Death Fest after that. I also brought up Fuck the Commerce Fest in Germany, which is yeah. a long-running, if, if memory serves me correct, more of a grindcore-based festival that has a, that does have a, a fair share of death metal bands. Maybe I'm off on that. But could you just tell us a little bit about what that meant to you guys and what that was like? Was that your first experience playing abroad?
2: So, my first experience playing abroad was I, I actually filled in doing vocals for this gorge huh. and we did uh, we did Fuck the Commerce when I was filling in with this gorge and that was actually Fuck the Commerce was my very first show overseas um, that was it and then we played there with Product, and it was it was great because it was kind of familiar I could kind of tell the guys what to expect as far as you know the, the lay of the land the stage set up and, and so on and so forth and Liturgy played there as well um it was a you know a, a, a great gig. That was a fantastic festival. It's a shame that it you know doesn't exist any longer.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, what? Let me
1: ask you. Since we're talking about this era, then what comes first: yes. the the band liturgy with Maddie Way on vocals, or the album Methods mm-hmm. of Execution by Brodekin?
2: Uh, Let's see. So methods would have been first, and then uh, we. we you know, I've been friends with Maddie for years. We actually played a show in Memphis, Tennessee, with Disgorge, Deeds the Flesh, I'm um, on one of their bloodletting tours. And that's when I um, actually had first met Maddie and, and the whole band. Uh, and so it was just a matter of time, just, you know, from being friends and talking, you know, we wanted to do something together. And here we had this, you know, situation where Brodick writing music and so on and so forth. And in the meantime, we're like, hey, you know, why not do this? So it's almost kind of like... Um, you know, with Maddie, it's almost like Brodick and 2.0, you know, huh. with, with Maddie on vocals. Right? There's some more, you know, the music's different in Liturgy, but there's a lot of similarities with Brodick and, of course, being all the members of Brodick and are on the, on the album. You're going to have that.
1: Uh, of, of course. And, um, you know, we should also, to the listeners, some people check out a lot of new music through this show. If they're interested in what you were just talking about, um, Liturgy, Uh, Of course, not to be confused with the New York City-based band, um, Liturgy, uh, Mm -hmm. the band that put out the uh, album, let me get it right here, Dawn of Ash uh, on Obscure Music in 2004, uh, and also, predating that, there was a band with a similar lineup, Cinerary, uh, that put out the Rituals of Desecration EP in 2001, just for the listeners, if they want to go back and check that out, kind of brodekin uh, and Matty Way adjacent music. That that being said, is there any... Um, th- there's kind of, I guess, talk maybe of Liturgy coming back and doing new material. Can you speak to that?
2: Yeah, we have... I'm trying to think of the exact number. I'm trying to remember what it is, but I think it's 10. I, Mike and I have, have... There's 10 songs, Liturgy songs, that are complete. They just would have to be recorded, obviously. You know, and we played... um when we played Las Vegas, that's a few years ago as Liturgy. We played two new songs at that show. Uh, so all the material is written. There's still work to do as far as like the lyrics go and things like that. But even that's the majority of it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, Maddie and I have to get together and kind of, you know, figure out what part he wants to do versus what part I want to do and yada yada. But really at this point, it's all pretty much square. We're just waiting on uh Waiting on some drums to be hammered out, to see if everything's going to line up, and then if everything, you know, is cool and there's no like major changes that have to be done, then we'd be good to go. Okay, something to look forward to
1: for fans. Um, yeah, and and moving forward as we recount the history there. Um, John Engman, in his own words, uh, in, in in our interview with him, and you guys did end up working with him again later on. But he said that he he bailed mm-hmm. and left you guys high and dry when he left brodekin Um, uh, it was, you know, with respect to him, can you can you speak to that? so to so, you know what you can re- re- recollect from that era and from him parting ways with the band.
2: Yeah, it was it was kind of a shock, and you know, I don't know if you know, if maybe part of the stress of being away from from, you know, all of his friends and family up north, you know, was, was a major part of that. I'm not really sure. See, there wasn't any friction going on between between any of us. You know, that wasn't it. Just one day, like literally, you know, I mean he he did say it right, you know, one day he got in this truck unbeknownst to us and he was gone. And by the time everybody knew really what was going on, he was back in Milwaukee. So it was kind of a real like shock, um, and I don't really remember the catalyst for it because again, there was a, we all got along. I, I I still talk to John, you know, um, you know, we'll get on the phone and talk, you know, every every couple weeks or something like that. So there's there was no bad blood that I remember as being the cause of that.
1: Okay, and I wouldn't be as forward with a question like that had we not already spoken to John and knowing that you guys oh, have, yeah, have gotten yeah. back together. Um, with him since then. I want to talk about that, too. But something that we brought up, yeah. John spoke extensively with us about his um, bodily pain that he experienced as a result of playing drums with poor form. Um, did, yeah. did you guys realize that he was experiencing so much pain, uh, maybe towards the end so, of his stay in the band or anything?
2: I think maybe toward the end we started to notice. and, and But I didn't attribute it really to drums. You know, being I'm not a drummer... Uh, it was tough for me to, to really see, like, if he's using proper form or, or not, or, or is he playing, you know, super tense, or is he kind of loose. That, that part I, I can kind of get. You know, when, when you see someone that's super tense, obviously you know they're doing some damage. You know, that it's not going to go well for them if they keep doing that for a number of years. Um, but one of the things I think was kind of John's sleeping arrangements too. You know, I mean, he would sleep all the time in a recliner, And i know that had to be just horrible for his back his hips Mm -hmm. you know just be sleeping like that um and then you you compound it with playing drums the way he's playing was playing drums and i think he just had a recipe for disaster but i don't recall any signs of him like really having difficulty until deep deep in you know then it was like toward the very end you'd see him kind of limping around a little bit and he would usually just blame it on, on sleep he'd say oh you know it's I didn't sleep well, or blah blah blah, and I thought, oh, okay, well, that's probably because you know you're sleeping on a recliner. You know, you got to get a, you got to get a damn mattress, man. I mean, that's, that's not good. But I didn't realize that it, it was getting that bad. I don't even know if he knew it until after the fact. until it was too late, you know what I mean? When he was trying to seek out help, like, what's going on? Going to different doctors and so on and so forth.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. And if I'm not mistaken, um, you guys actually had. Uh, a, a, a man from Germany, Henning
2: Paulson, playing drums after John left at a certain point. So that was the plan. That that was kind of what we thought was going to happen, and nothing ever materialized from that. You know, there was talk about him coming over, <clears throat> excuse me, coming over and doing you know a couple rehearsals and things. You know, as far as that go, and writing music and whatnot. And it just it just never panned out. And I, I think part of it was, you know, looking back on it. You know, part of it was we were just kind of um, all, Mike and I were just, just kind of just bummed out. Like, we were just not really having that drive really at that moment in time, um, just because of what had happened with John. And then, you know, you find out how he's got, you know, some, some, some body injuries and so on and so forth. And it was just, it just really wasn't on our radar at that time to really be pushing and doing anything. So, you know, no disrespect to Henning or to his skills, it just didn't work out.
1: That's perfectly understandable. Um, and I'm just kind of building up to eventually the band would, uh, I don't know if you want to say split up or went on hiatus, but around 2008, Brodekin
2: became inactive then. Yeah, yeah, it was a, definitely a big hiatus, without a doubt. Yeah. And there were there were things going on, like, you know, family stuff that was just a little bit overbearing for Mike and I to deal with. And it was just too much. So we had, Something had to go. And unfortunately, for, for a period of time, it had to be
1: music that's very understandable especially those of us in underground music um, and then kind of moving ahead to Brodekin being reactivated could you please give us your mm-hmm. recollection of I imagine it would be around 2014 or 2015 that John Engman comes back into the fold playing um, his uh, midi drums his his finger midi drums that he also uh, again just, just, just for the listeners in that episode we interviewed with him he talks about that too
2: yeah, Mike and I had uh, gotten to a point where we were writing music together again, you know, and we had, you know, some ideas for new stuff, and uh, we said, well, hey, you know, if we're going to do this, we got to we gotta contact John, I mean, let's see what happens with this. So I, I called John, we were talking, and he's like, well, look, you know, I mean, I can't, he told me straight up, he's like, look, I can't play drums anymore. And I said, yeah, I know, I, and let's, let's just get together and see how this goes. And. If it doesn't go well, if we all agree it it doesn't sound good, then we'll say, okay, that's that, and and we'll do something else. So Mike and I drove up to Milwaukee, and we got together and jammed, you know, for the weekend, played three or four songs from the old stuff, and just had a lot of fun doing it. And, you know, as much as John, you know, okay, he can't play traditional drums, the thing was, you know, John's our friend, and we didn't want to be like, oh, well, you know, he can't play drums, so let's just go find somebody else. We We didn't want it to be like that. You know, so if we wanted it to be there for him, like, hey, if you want to do this, we're all in. However you need to do it, we're all about it. And he was, you know, super cool with it and ready to go. And then when he felt that it was, you know, just not working out from his perspective, we let him make that decision. We didn't say, oh, well, being you have to use the MIDI pad, you can't be part of this. We just wasn't wasn't even on the like, you know, on the agenda to even say something like that to him.
1: Okay, and, and, you know, there's some impressive footage, people can look on YouTube, of him playing with you guys in 2016, uh, live with the MIDI pads, and he goes into great t- detail about exactly what he does with those. It's it's uh, it's very different, and it's interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about feedback you would get, and how those shows went? Because um, it's kind of like, I mean, that's kind of like a, a big leap for you guys uh, you know and it speaks to like the loyalty to John is that you the band's coming back it's amassed this cult following that only built over the time you were inactive and you come back without a traditional drummer but with John doing this very experimental thing was there some pushback from people?
2: Yeah, for sure. But early on, there was also a lot of support. You know, Sean from Future Pile was one of the first people that saw us perform with this. And we just played a, a show, like a surprise thing. We just jumped on a bill up in Milwaukee. And then we played like five or six songs, you know, just to just to try it out in front of a, you know, in a live setting. And he was super stoked about it, thought it was incredible. You know, then, of course there was the other side of that. You know, also Danny from Malignancy was a big supporter. He thought it was, you know, crazy to see. And I've known Danny for a long time either and he's not going to sugarcoat anything just because Mm -hmm. I know him. He's Mm going to tell me exactly what he thinks. So I appreciated, you know, both him and Sean's input on that. Um, But but there was some blowback for sure. And, you know, a lot of people were saying it's just not right. You know, Brodick has to have drums. It's It's a drum type band, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't know you know again to me i was always and i've said it a lot just impressed with what he was able to do you know he's it's not a drum machine he didn't push play and walk away Mm -hmm. you know every note you're hearing he's striking and to try and play that is insane And, and and that he was able to do that was crazy and i thought it was awful interesting how so many people would they would talk smack about it, but then they would quickly cover their bass. They would say, no, it's just not right, but it, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. Oh, but, but drum machine bands, that's different, that's cool. And I thought, so what is the difference? You know, I mean, he's actually performing this as opposed to programming it and hitting play. And you know, what this guy has done is he's got a physical injury. He's found a way to work around it. You know, and I've said it before, we wouldn't be talking smack about a guy that's playing guitar with his feet. We'd say, oh my God, that guy's playing guitar with his feet. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was just always kind of weird to me, but, and, and John took it a lot harder, of course, because, you know, he's the one that's the target here when people are talking about it and talking bad. He definitely got far more negative comments than he did get positive ones. And he would show me some of the texts and things he would get, like, through Facebook Messenger and stuff, and it was insane some of the things people were saying. I mean, it's, it was just ridiculous. That's a shame.
0: Yeah, imagine caring that much, too. Like, being that guy, be like, I need to write something to Brodkin right now. Like, that's... that's, Right, right. I actually... Yeah, uh, it was really disappointing. All all transparency. I know that we talked to, um, you know, Colin Marston, and uh, he he got an MPD because he was inspired Mm -hmm. by John Engman, and Mm -hmm. I, too, have bought one. And, um... Have you really? Yes, I have. I've messed around with it. It's really hard. Um...
2: It's very hard. I'm yeah, just trying to right. do like a
0: skank beat, keep that up, and it's like, <laughs>
2: so Yeah, I couldn't do anything. I'm not, not that I'm a drummer at all anyway, but, uh, you know, trying to play that was just like, dude, I don't know how in the world you're doing this. It's just crazy. Yeah. And I also thought, you skill. know, there's, there's something here because, you know, look, drums, let's face it, drums, there's, there's a couple barriers to entry with drums. First of all, you have to have the space to have a drum set. Second of all, you have to have the money to buy all that stuff Mm. and i thought you know this pad type thing could really be an entry level to get someone into percussion whether or not dropping you know thousands of dollars on a drum kit but i don't know you know it's one of those things where i just guess you know certain uh, visual aspects weren't there for a lot of people um and i'm not I can understand but at the same time if it were me and it was the band I saw and enjoyed and it sounded good, okay, fine. I definitely wouldn't go out of my way to message the man and tell him how, how terrible it is. Yeah. You how he's ruining the band. Th- you know, I mean, what? It's just crazy. Yeah, that part just surprises me.
0: Like, who has the time to do that? When, like, <laughs> yeah, it was,
2: it was definitely surprising. And, it, and you know, to be fair, you know, John stuck it out as long as he could. And I understand that because you have to, um, this, this is what's so crazy to me. I mean, look. You know, well, it, it, everything's global, right? You've got Facebook. Somebody in Australia can text you whenever, and, you know, it's always happening 24-7. So John would go to bed. He'd get up in the morning, and he'd look at his phone because it's his alarm clock, and it's full of, you know, messages, and it's all just unpleasant messages. You know, you're not going to take that forever. You're eventually going to say enough's enough. Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, again, no hard feelings on that. I understand. That's just not that's not healthy to get up every morning and see stuff like that.
1: No. Yeah, well, big shout out to John Engman. Um, he's been through the grinder with it, man. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. but but mm-hmm. We, we should and we should shout out. Um, uh, people can check out all his different projects, and he's you know he's still very active with a lot of his noise and grind based stuff, and he still does use his uh, the, what the what's the correct term the MIDI pads MPDs. yeah the MPDs like, yeah that's uh, Tom's the engineer MPDs, he knows yeah. that better than me, um, but but then so now moving on from that part. Um, did, it, it's listed here on Metalum. Uh, uh, Jan Van uh, Luechtenberg uh, is the drummer from 2016 to 2020 before Brennan
2: Shackleford. Did you guys play extensively with Jan? So Jan was uh, Jan was friends with John. So it's kind of funny. You know, they would they would get online and talk to each other and Facetime and stuff like that. And and John said, "Hey, I think you should you know give this guy a chance and check it out." So we're like, "Okay, you know, cool. You know, that sounds good to me." And um, you know, he learned the material and went over there. And yeah, we played uh, we played many shows with with Jan. We did um was Netherlands Death Fest. We did uh, you know a couple South America dates. We did some shows in the States. We did the Quebec Death Fest. Um, we did several shows with Jan. Absolutely. Um, we did um, what's what was the other one? Uh, uh, what's called monthly assault in Switzerland. We did that one. Um, we did NRW Fest in the uh, scared in Germany. But we did a lot of stuff with that. Absolutely.
1: Okay, and our Scandinavian listeners, I owe them an apology. Uh, they they cringed when I said Jan. You corrected me. Jan is the correct... Jan, yes, yes. But uh, but, so you play all those shows with Jan. You're very active from 2016 forward. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because now in that newer era, that more modern era of 2016 forward, are you noticing in the scene your own influence and... uh, uh, your own, um, like, like bands kind of coming up, maybe opening up for you guys on tour or at these festivals that profess protokin as an influence and clearly take something from that sound.
2: Yeah, and, you know, it was kind of, um, it was kind of weird, you know, to, to be honest. Uh, it was not something I was really expecting, um, and even, even with seeing some bands using similar cover art, you know, or, 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 um, Lyrical, you know, kind of inspirations and things like that was kind of, kind of surprising to me because it really felt like when we were doing it, you know, going back to the old days, you know, festival, you know, instruments, we were the only ones doing it. And it was, it was like just us. And there was like no one you could kind of like bounce off of. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you take the Darius Rash. If you're Metallica, you can kind of bounce off Megadeth or Slayer or something like that. You guys are doing something kind of similar. Um, but we didn't really have that. So when I saw things like that going on, yeah, it was it was really kind of cool, interesting, um, flattering for the most part for people to say the things they were saying and you know, that we were being an inspiration to them it was it was definitely a surprise and um, you know I definitely I definitely appreciate it. It's, it's really cool to hear that.
1: Okay, you know while we're on that topic of uh, the specific aesthetic there, um, you know to the. To the casual death metal uh, fan like myself, we see Instruments of Torture, Festival of Death, and so on and so forth, right up to, to your latest release that we will get to, Perpetuation of Suffering, your new EP. Um, but there, it seems like, obviously, there's this kind of medieval torture device, uh, historical thing going on. But is there uh, a distinction that you make between the albums, yourself being more of a historian and, and the you know knowing more about this than me, are there certain themes between your albums? Um, I don't know, maybe eras or, or, or just different methods of torture or reasoning behind the torture? I don't know. How are the albums distinct from one another in terms of lyrics and, and those themes?
2: Well, I think the lyrics uh, all pretty much are similar in respect. I don't make any real you know hard lines between, let's say, like something going on in the 15th century is only going to be on Festival of Death and and, then something from the 14th century and earlier will be Instruments of Torture. It just happens to be kind of what I'm into at the moment. You know, um, when Instruments of Torture came around, you know, the the songs that are on there were things that I was just involved in reading and studying and and it just kind of continues on. So there's going to be kind of um, a flow, but there's also going to be an ebb in the sense that I may be writing about something on, you know, Methods of Execution from the 15th century, and I was as well on on Festival of Death. It's just the way it is. You know, I don't really set up to do anything necessarily as a theme. Um, I've thought about it in the past, about doing an album that was just themed around something, uh, but I haven't done it yet
1: okay um that's good to know and uh you know i do want to ask you a little bit more about um uh you know your interest in in history and that sort of thing but we're kind of like right on the cusp now of getting into this latest era of brodekin and i would be doing a disservice to everybody involved here if i didn't talk about um this latest uh ep that caught some of us by surprise uh your two-song perpetuation of suffering ep released on august 31st 2021 Um, just a few weeks ago with Brennan Shackelford on drums.
2: Yeah, so Brennan, he also plays in a couple other bands. He plays in a band called Seth's of Corruption, and he plays in a band called Reviled, which is actually going to have a release on Unmatched Fatality Records Mm -hmm. in October. Um, And we met him at, uh, I actually met him at Las Vegas F -F f but I was kind of, he, he was kind of on my radar before that because he did a cover of Flow of Maggots and it was on YouTube and I was like oh okay so what's this all about then as funny as it is the guys in the Heretics For- the Heretics Forks said hey have you seen this video you know you maybe should keep an eye on this guy and it was kind of funny because I already was kind of watching him to see to see what was going on um, and then here we go again when we find ourselves in a situation where we need a drummer I talked to Mike I said what do you what do you think about this guy and he was Literally the only guy that we uh, contacted.
1: Okay, and um, the last listener uh, question we have, the last fan question we have, is from Harrison Clark, uh, who asks, "What was it like to record some new brodekin after over a decade?" And I would just elaborate on that. Um, would you confirm that that it was well over a decade since you recorded? I believe it was, and maybe just like your your mindset was there trepidation. Was it more exciting? Was it more just, like, natural? Like, just take us through uh, uh, the the actual process of kind of, like, reaching that milestone.
2: Sure. Um, before we did this, I did a couple, like, backing vocal spots for a couple different bands. You know, I did, you know, a tune for a band called Deck Arabian. I did it for the Heretics Fork. Um, so, you know, but, but that's just the backing vocal, right? That's only 20 seconds, you know, 30 seconds, top, something like that. So, when it came time to do that there was a little bit of um yeah there was a little bit of nerves involved in it for sure because you know you've got i I don't let the like pressure so to speak of previous releases kind of pile up on me but what i did want to do is i wanted to make sure that what we were doing at least from my standpoint my parts that i'm recording were going to be as good as they could possibly be so there was a you know a little bit of pressure and you know the vocals i did this time around you know we brought in some high vocals some screamy type stuff which we only flirted with in a couple songs on methods of execution so with this they kind of came a little bit more to the forefront and i mean then that you know there was a little bit of like you know eh, you know i'm not sure about this let's see how it goes um when it came to recording bass that part was just like autopilot it didn't phase me as far as that goes i was a little more concerned about the vocal side, and Mike's like a machine when he records. It's just ridiculous. Everything's one take. I mean, it's just stupid. It's enraging (laughs) to to someone who has to practice. (laughs) Awesome, man. Uh,
1: So, I gotta ask now, what are the plans? We've had this two-song EP out, and uh, fans and Mm -hmm. listeners are very grateful for that, but we're greedy, so we want to know, what are your plans (laughs) for uh, future recordings?
2: So, we have... um there's 10 including those two songs that you get on the on the promo there um there's 10 songs so you could say there's eight songs in addition to those two and i was talking to mike yesterday There might be another song so that would give us nine new songs so to speak counting those two that's 11 and the plan is to have the full length out in uh, next year 2022
1: okay and there's a couple of paulo questions that kind of fit in right here at this point of the interview uh, the first mm-hmm. one with respect to your privacy but Paulo says with the distance between yeah. band members how does Brodekin rehearse so I guess you guys probably don't all live in the same neighborhood nowadays
2: No definitely not. Uh, Mike's about an hour from me and then Brennan's in Texas mm. so it's a totally different you know thing it, it, it's, it's kind of like reminiscent back to John living in Milwaukee if you will huh. you know where we we have to travel so right now, Granted, things are a lot easier now than they were when John was living in Milwaukee. You know, we can go ahead and record something and boom, you know, Brennan's got a file in his email, you know, tonight and he can check it out. And that's what we've been doing. You know, the songs, as far as the songs, guitar and all that stuff the structures are all done. And in fact, Mike, even though we joked about the percussion thing, you know, Mike actually does play drums. So he wrote all the drums to all the songs, including the two on the promo and when we sent them to to brennan we said look if you want to change something or or add you know please do so you know go right ahead and he did make a couple changes they were all very tasteful you know he's got a great ear he knows what's going on um so it's tough but at the same time i gotta tell you you know brennan and mike you know as far as sending files back and forth it's been you know a seamless seamless process
1: Okay, well, yeah. Nowadays, it's a lot more common. Um, it's a lot easier to do that sort a of thing. A lot easier. Uh, yeah, well, and
2: well, even with John, you know, when we start sort of getting back together, we—I can't remember the name of the um, the program we were using, but we were rehearsed, you know, basically online. You know, it was—it wasn't the greatest. Oh, it's called Jam Kazam. That's what it was. It wasn't the greatest, but uh, we were doing that for a while. So even that was far easier than when he lived in Milwaukee, and then now it's even—it's even more simple.
1: Well, Paulo, I think that kind of touches on maybe the answer for this next question from Paulo. Um, He asks, will there be a chance that Brodekin will perform as a four-piece? It sounds like that would complicate things um, a lot now with, with you guys being spread out maybe.
2: It's hard to say because, yeah, you know, Joaquin's all the way in California, you know. But that being said, you know, Joaquin has always been super stellar when we've, when we've played out. I mean, the guy would even bring... You know, even when we would practice, we'd play overseas, he would pack a little bitty practice amp in his luggage and we'd practice in the hotel room and stuff like that. So it's entirely possible. I don't rule anything out. You know? And the big thing with Mike is you know, Mike is probably more likely to say, hey, I'd like to play that festival or whatever. And his work schedule doesn't allow him the freedom as much as, to get out and play as Joaquin's does, which is kind of how that all happens.
1: Okay. Yeah, the work schedules are big thing with bands, man. The older yep. you get, and yep. then when, you know right. families and stuff like that, we, we've heard that story right. many times. We've been, some of us have lived of it too. Course. Yeah, it's just part of the part of the game. Um, well, speaking yeah. to that, I mean, you know, obviously the pandemic this last year and a half has been tough on all bands, mm-hmm. um, and it's mm-hmm. slowed down everyone's plan. Did you guys have specific touring or anything like that that you had to cancel as a result of that?
2: The only thing we had that I can remember off the bat was we had a a couple of South America shows in Ecuador. I think there was one in Colombia we were going to do that we had to can. Um, Other than that, it seemed that we kind of, we just didn't have a whole lot set up. And it just happened when it did, and so it kind of worked out, you know. I mean, I'm glad that we didn't have a whole tour or something we had to cancel, of course. You know, so... I guess it worked out the best it possibly could from our standpoint
0: hmm hey uh I, I had a quick question you were talking before mm-hmm. about um well well I want to get back to the history thing yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. yeah you, you were talking about how like um when you write your songs you don't really focus on one time period um, what mm-hmm. are you what are you reading about right now
2: Let's see. So right now, I'm actually reading about nothing history-related. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm reading about the Clean Air Act. <laughs> but uh, going back in the history, the last thing I read was, um, i trying to remember the author's name. It's the second, third book I've got on the subject was uh, about Joan of Arc. Um, I can't remember the author's name. I, I've got two or three books on the same subject. So that's the latest thing I've been reading. Uh, which is, you know, a pretty fascinating story. This one actually has the, um, I mean, you know, you have to you have to take it for what it's worth, right? You know, we weren't in the cell with Joan of Arc. So anybody that's releasing any notes that are supposed to be, you know, like basically uh, interview notes, we have to kind of just take their word for it. So that's, that's pretty interesting. You know, the answer she had to, we'll just say, the, the interviewer, were pretty fascinating for someone who was like what 16 years old i yeah. mean it's pretty yeah. interesting
0: yeah it's a weird story you know uh and the, it's the very weird the canonization yeah. seems a little false too i mean, it will not for uh yeah. forced is a better word um
2: i don't know yeah you know yeah. but yeah that's a that's I a know strange one it is it is interesting um but you know that, that being said i've i've often gone back and read books i've read already because some of these history books are so slammed with so much, you know, facts and dates that you're gonna definitely forget a certain amount of it. And you go back through, it and you're like, "Oh yeah, now you remember," you know. So that's kind of a, that's kind of what I do, I guess. I, I do go back and reread a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah, you got to. I mean, the dates are always like impossible. You can remember like the sequence, but you're never gonna remember
2: all that stuff. Um, what's the... right? Yeah, there's no way, and especially when you're talking, you know, independent country. He's like, "Oh, well, what's going on in Germany in the 1500s? Oh, what's going on in France?" And it's like, 50- "Yeah, you're just not going to keep all that straight."
0: Yeah, it's uh, there's too much happening, way too much. Um, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, how re- how recent in history would you go with Brodequin material?
2: Hmm, that's a good question. You know, and, and and it's I've talked to a few people about it. I think probably the furthest I would probably go. It would probably be about the 16th century. It would probably be, probably be about it. Now, granted, you know, there's all kinds of horrible stuff we could talk about after that. You know, we know that. You know, there's all kinds of, you know, <clears throat> different execution techniques or even just interrogation techniques that we could talk about in the modern era, without a doubt. But um, I just, uh, I'm stuck in the in the history side of it. Right.
0: No, I, I hear you. I I I was doing some reading on Robespierre, and I was like, this is very Quin
2: But also, it's too yes. late. It's too. It's too much happening. There's, there's muskets. Right. You can't have that. Right. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, I know. And, and even, you know, I mean, it, and it's not just based on like you know, Europe, for example. You, know, there's many things I've read about from in Asia and, and so on and so forth that are every bit as brutal and I'm sure we'll make an appearance. It just hasn't happened yet.
1: Do, do you feel that um, sticking to source material that's that far in the past kind of frees you from um, maybe, pe- not, that, not that you would put them there, but perceived political undertones? Like, say, if you were to write about things that happened in World War II, for instance, or, or whatever, or something the United States did, if you were writing it from an objective standpoint as just a fascination and torture techniques or whatever, do you find that it frees you up to just stay that far back in history because people don't really aren't aware of the, the political context?
2: I think a lot of that is true, yeah. I mean, you're looking back at the Joan of Arc story, for example, there were a lot of politics involved in that. Or looking at the actual um, uh, Father Urbain Grandieu, who's the, the trade card, He is actually in the Brodick and the Instruments of Torture album. He's the guy in the big box, having the wedges slammed into his legs. Um, That was extremely political. And now, depending on where you're at, you know, if you're well-versed in that, yeah. I mean, all of a sudden that becomes a political thing and you're taking sides. And you're right. If, If I were to do something about, you know, let's say some of the things that were happening in the Holocaust, you know, how would that be perceived? Am I now being perceived as being like pro-Nazi? Or am I, you see what I mean? Like, it's yeah. kind of like a dangerous, um, I never really thought about it as far as writing songs because I was always just so comfortable and so happy being in the, in, the, in the dark ages, if you will. But, you know, now that you bring it up, yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, we certainly could write a song about waterboarding and, you know, waterboarding is something that was happening back in the medieval era. It just wasn't known as waterboarding, but it was water torture. It was the same thing, basically. If you wrote about it now from a modern standpoint, uh, standpoint of waterboarding, it could be seen as a, as a political thing for sure.
1: It would seem like almost something more appropriate in like a, maybe like a politically active punk record or something.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. All right. Interesting, man. Um, I'm sorry, Tom, did I derail your... No, no. I'm
0: just uh, racking my brain of history. Oh, one thing I did see recently: um, the, <laughs> the depiction of a of a Brodequin being used in uh, Ken Russell's *The Devils* with Alva Reed. Have you ever really? seen that one? No, I haven't seen that. I have to check that out. It is hard to watch. It is. Uh, that, I bet that movie is. Yeah. yeah, I actually had to get a DVD from like Korea or something because it's not on any streaming platforms. Mm. And kind of uh, really, yeah, and, it's like a little. And what's it, what's it called again? It's called the Devils, and uh, the devil. I, I forget. Okay. It's based on a. Um, it's a highly fici- fictionalized version of a, uh, a, real, a real priest in France who was, um, basically putting up some resistance to. I'm forgetting the king. I think time period was like, yeah, f- 1500s. But um, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's
0: yeah, that's, yeah. I get it. Yep. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it, it's, it's a ridiculous movie. I mean, it's got humor. It's, like, overly sexualized. It's, like, highly blasphemous. And um, I had done oh. some research on Oliver Reed, and I wanted to see that movie. Now, Ken Russell, he's the guy who did, like, Tommy, you know. Um, oh, with, okay. the, with The Who and uh, a few other, like, TV movies. And uh, apparently this one yeah. just went over real bad in the public
2: eye. he got <laughs> brutal. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because if they're kind of referencing, like, you know, Father... Urban Grandieu, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrong, uh, there was a lot of craziness in that. You know, I mean, he was a a very powerful priest in town. He ended up, you know, getting this um, this woman pregnant, who was uh, the daughter of a very politically connected family. I mean, it was it was it's a crazy story. That's, if you ever want to read something, yes, yeah, I'm know. pretty
0: sure that's what The Devils is based on. They they call him a witch uh, okay. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, so absolutely, it's the same guy. Yeah. Look at that.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> are there now I mean we're talking about movies here I, you know are there I don't know if you watch a lot of movies or are there any movies that that you would say um, or that you appreciate as being particularly historically accurate because we always hear how Hollywood um, changes everything and you can't really rely on Hollywood to give you a, a true story
2: sure I think you know if we're talking about like torture and execution um I cannot remember. You could find it just by what I'm telling you, but I can't remember who the director was. But it was a silent film, and it was about Joan of Arc, and it might even actually be just called Joan of Arc. But it's you know black and white silent film, and it's probably the best film I've ever seen on Joan of Arc.
0: I think it's because that's considered the like the best film of that
2: period. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, Uh, are we talking about no dialogue to distract you? The it's path. 100% just visual you know and so if you have some you know if you have an idea of the story it helps out obviously but as it's going on you know there's no distraction from any kind of dialogue or any kind of other side story or whatever it's just all in your face and it's like I don't know I think it's a really good film
1: The, the Passion of Joan of Arc from
2: 1928 that's it yep, okay. that's wow
1: it. interesting
0: yeah, I watched the restored version of that like a year and a half ago. Wild.
2: Okay. okay I, I haven't it seen is. It. Yeah. It's a wild film.
1: Yeah. Okay, interesting, man. Um yeah, trying try to rack our rack our brains for the historical. What now? I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to put Nile on blast. No, I'm sorry. All, <laughs> all kidding aside. Okay. But uh, you know, in terms of the extreme metal scene, um, are there other albums, other bands that use history for subject matter that you appreciate for maybe for accuracy or just in general for what they do?
2: I definitely like Nile's early stuff. You know, the first few albums, I was all about it, especially the second album, uh Nefren Kai album. I, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, I liked all the visuals. I liked all of the different sound elements they had in there. It. it sounded very tribal. It sounded very legitimate. Um, you know, I mean, granted, you know, I've never been to Egypt, especially during that time. What I'm saying is it gave you that kind of a feel. It gave you that kind of vibe, and I really appreciate it. I would say that, you know, Nile is probably the, the one that I would think of the most, especially mm-hmm. the earlier stuff.
1: And I'm being facetious. We appreciate and respect Nile and Carl Sanders and all those guys. Of course, sure. it's just—it's also, you know, it's one of those things where they're—they're—they're they're, they're so big. I don't feel bad poking fun at them. I'm not hurting them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I understand that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um. Okay, man. And uh, what was the uh, Tom? We had uh, we had our special bonus episode. What was it about Nero, Emperor Nero of Rome? Yeah, Nero. Oh, we yeah. were. Yeah. So.
0: I, yeah. I I don't know why I didn't lead off with of this. So I do a podcast in which I uh, open my mouth a lot more, and we talk. We do talk history, but um, it's a very uh, it's a a dirty man's take on history. It's called Roast Mortem, <laughs> and we okay, and we, we let our inner child out. We do a bunch of research, and we make fun of people uh, who are dead and can't come after us. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we had done Nero, and uh, yeah, that one's mm-hmm. that one's hard to listen to. In a a lot of ways, (laughs) not not the episode, but just more like uh, the presentation on it. The uh, amount of like sexual debauchery and you know, sure, yeah, the the amount of victims and stuff. You you know, you feel bad. We make fun, but it's like uh,
1: that. Well, that was something uh, because that's Tom's podcast. uh, that that I'm not on. It's you know it's two separate shows. But I I guess it uh, mm-hmm. appeared on that one with Nero and we talked about we touched a little bit on that one about how the further you go back in history, the less uh, like you know politics and, and you know plays in in that sort of context. You know,
0: it, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Sure. You remove modern politics are not you can't compare them. Of course, the, yeah. uh, the, you know the chaos of yesteryear. It's
2: not better or right. worse.
0: It's just an, a different type of insanity. Huh. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, but uh, and and then with Nero, you also got to look at like Caligula. You know, I mean, that guy was totally nuts too. So off his rocker.
1: Yeah. He,
2: he, yeah, he's an interesting one to look at too. I mean, you're talking about bodies piling up. Yeah, he had he had quite a few for for his uh, for his work too.
1: There there was a movie with Roddy McDowell, right in the '70s, I believe, Caligula. There was there was a famous famously um, explicit Caligula movie. I can't vouch for the historical accuracy. Uh, okay. But I, I'd like to watch that. Yeah. All right. But um, all right. Well, you know, Jamie, we appreciate your time. I want to keep you on all night asking you history questions now. But we got to be. <laughs> no,
2: we, I get it. It's totally cool.
1: Yeah. We we got to be respectful of your time too. And you've given us so much already. Uh, we always close out our interviews. By asking the guests to recommend us one album, uh, one older album, and one newer album, it can be by any artists you like. It doesn't have to be metal; could be metal. Just two recommendations: one a little bit older, and one a little bit newer.
2: Hmm. Let's see. That's tricky. And the reason I say it's tricky is because I always find myself being behind on the new stuff. You know, mm-hmm. like I'll stumble across something, and it's like, you know, oh, well, this is this is this is brand new, and actually, no, it's not you know it's like three years old (laughs) and uh that that's kind of always like um i don't want to say like embarrassing but it sure can be you know depending on who you're talking to uh especially you know if they think you're really into everything which i mean i am to a standpoint but i mean you know to a certain point but sometimes things get lost i would say i would go back i mean for sure just drumming you know just intense drumming i would look at um Inhuman Ritual Mass Murder by Thunderbolt. I think that that is just uh, Thunderbolt. over the top. You have Thunderbolt, all black metal band from early 2000s. Um, and I think that that's just some really nasty stuff. You know, really nasty. Then for something new, I would look at a band called Cadaveracity. They've got a little EP now, little plug here. It is on a Mass Brutality. But... Uh, It's some pretty intense stuff. You got guys from multiple bands in there, from perverted charity, all kinds of stuff. Those guys are just, I don't know, they're intense. Definitely intense.
1: Okay, and let me squeeze one other different recommendation in here. I I hesitated, I, I restrained myself from asking you about specific books and source material you've used for lyrics. Sure because I didn't want you to give away your sources or your secrets, but I sure. will ask. I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> well, you, know, I, I, you, you know, you've talked about being an avid reader. Maybe are there like, yeah. is there a book or maybe one or two books you could recommend to us um, who are very interested in Brodekin's lyrical and subject matter? Um, just maybe books that you know to be fairly more or less historically accurate and that could elaborate on, on those sort of things.
2: Oh, let's see, I'm trying to think of who the author the author is. I believe it's Abbott. There's a book called Execution by Jeffrey Abbott, which is fantastic. Actually, you know, to be honest, anything by Jeffrey Abbott mm. is fantastic. And if, if I were only recommending one author, I would say Jeffrey Abbott. I mean, he's an interesting character. He actually ended up uh, in retirement working at the Tower of London. Um, he's a, He's an interesting dude or was an interesting dude. He passed away several years ago, but pretty interesting guy. Okay, wow. that's
1: that's We'll, we'll look that up, man. Um, well, Jamie, yeah. we appreciate, like I said, we'd love to talk to you all night, but we want to be respectful of your time. We appreciate everything you've told us and talked about uh, tonight, and we wish you guys, you and your brother Mike, the best going forward with Brodekin as the legacy continues. Um, and just any parting words for fans of your music and listeners of our show?
2: Well, you know, we really appreciate all the the support we've got from all all of our friends and fans all over the place, Uh, it means a lot to us because we took a big break there. And, you know, I I really think that this time around, so to speak, it's even more special because as cool as it was back in the beginning, we were in the moment and we were doing our thing. Well, when we took the long hiatus, it really gives you a chance to kind of reflect. And now that we're back into it, I'm just much more appreciative, maybe than I was in the beginning. You know, of, of people's kind words and just their support, and guys like yourselves. You know, taking your time just to chat a little bit about about what we do. So I super appreciate it. I really, you know, thank you a lot, guys.
1: Uh, excellent, man. We thank you for everything you do, man. It's a mutual mutual appreciation society. We always say here, it's the underground scene. Yeah. Um, and so, Jamie, right. we'll uh, we'll be in we'll be in touch. Um, this episode will probably go out on Friday. And uh, I'll send you a link, okay. and um, you know we'll take it from there. Yeah. We'll just promote it online, man. We appreciate your time.
2: Take care, guys. Have a great night.
1: Jamie Bailey of Brodekin
0: and Liturgy. I was excited. I was happy to hear all the things he was saying. The history of the sound. The history of the world.
1: I don't say this often. I don't feel like this often on this podcast. This might be the first time saying this on this podcast. I was tempted to not be respectful of his time. Yeah. I was tempted to disrespect Jamie Bailey of Brodikin's time. Yeah. I, I just wanted him to keep talking about history.
0: Actually, do you see this? I had one of the scripts that I had from the other show. Well, yeah, I
1: noticed it's like five pages of all... Pr- I was like, whoa, Tom went ham on the research tonight. Well,
0: I'll be transparent. This is a my Robespierre script. Okay. And if okay. you want me to read the entire 12 pages of what I have written about Save him, it for Patreon. All right. Either way, um, born Francois-Marie... Is- <laughs> no, i I'm kidding. Go to the other no, show for that. you
1: you you played everybody you played a joke on everybody no when we started talking about history though I I just wanted to keep going man I felt like I felt like we were like I felt like it was the part of the class where the teacher like loosens the tie and sits on his desk right and it's like all right guys what do you want to talk you want to know about the you know the Iron Maiden where they got the band name? you know what I mean I, I felt yeah. like we were at, but you know I tried to keep it keep it succinct you know I didn't want to take up too much of the man's time okay. you know? Uh, either way, that was a lot of fun. Great dude to talk to. Absolutely, man. You can look up Unmatched Brutality Records. Uh, look up brodekin for all their releases. They put them out on uh, independently Unmatched Brutality Records, and that includes up to and including Perpetuation of Suffering, the latest uh, two-song offering in 2021 that just slapped everybody in the face um, out of the pandemic uh, by surprise. I didn't see it coming. Maybe you did. I, maybe you're cooler than me. Polo probably knew it was coming.
2: He Paulo, knew. Paulo, was Paulo, knew.
1: Yeah, Paulo knew it was coming like a year ago. But either way, uh, go peep it. Big shout out to Jamie and his brother Mike. Man, we appreciate brodekin and the legacy they've built and continue to forge in the underground death metal community.
0: Yeah, and uh, if you want to forge something our way, go to patreon.com slash podcast.
1: Yeah, if you want to forge a voicemail and pretend you're big will, let's yeah. see if you can nail the accent. Uh, no. Use your own accent. <laughs> yeah. What's you, use your voice,
0: your speaking voice. Yeah. Uh,
1: 631-837-3274. Leave a line. It's not just for Italian men, by the way. Yeah. We like the Italian men calling. Tone Baldone is a beautiful gentleman. A professional. Yes. Class act. But there's room. Vinny Patricelli, another wonderful human being. a mm. d- Delightful man. I appraise I, uh, his business uh, as a... Uh, being uh genuine yeah but uh but 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 okay i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off those guys those guys talk a lot i'm sorry i'm sorry those guys those guys keep it going anyway we hope to hear from them in the future but we also hope to hear hear from you you got a little vent uh you got a little recommendo you got you got a problem with something big will said maybe you don't like me maybe you don't like tom Maybe you want Justin back. Maybe you want Justin to take over Heavy Hole Podcast and get Tom and Will out of here. I don't know.
0: Just him breathing into the microphone. Yeah,
1: that's between you and, and your psychiatrist, but talk about it on the voicemail if you if you got a vent, if you got to get it out. It's perfect. I don't know.
0: Yeah, call that number 631-837-3274. Let yeah. us know.
1: Or maybe you're a little shy baby guy and you don't want to talk on the phone. You can go to heavyholepodcast.com. We got t-shirts for sale. We got patches for sale. We got the links to all your social medias on there. I'm back on Facebook. They ca- they, yeah, you got they, kicked they, off, right? They, I didn't get that's that's a rumor. That's an allegation.
0: Uh, I heard that the I, entire user base was kicked off for
1: hate speech. Oh yeah, there was like a thi- there was a little yeah. there was a bug in the system today. China but didn't yeah, like I, it. I was know uh, I was I'm back on Facebook posting. We got the Instagram going. Tom's on Twitter. We got Patreon. If you want to toss a couple of bucks our way, we're getting the Patreons back online. We got bonus episodes coming to you monthly. Yeah, we just recorded one. I'm. Yeah. post it this week. Yeah, I watched him do it. I, yeah. s- I sit here and watch Tom do it to make sure he's not playing Pokemon or whatever the fu- whatever the kids yep. do.
0: It. Yeah, my computer is actually attached to a rack, um, not a, a not a 19 inch equipment rack, but rather a torture rack. Oh. In honor of my love for Brodkin, I still pronounce it different
1: every time. Yeah. Yeah. Rack City. I'm just All racking right. up. Yes. All right. Uh, but listen, uh, we appreciate uh, everybody giving us racks on Patreon, man. We got bonus episodes coming your way, out outtakes and clips from different episodes, all sorts of hot stuff. We're working on our YouTube content. We got we got behind the scenes, uh, little yeah. guys doing little things, making the little clips and stuff. We're gonna do it. It's yeah, we're still nice. working on feedback on those. Yeah, I, look, I'm a, I'm approaching middle age. I get it. Sometimes you just go to YouTube. You don't know about Spotfly or whatever. Spotfly. Yeah, whatever. Wow. I don't know. But anyway, heavy hole, po- heavy hole Podcast. Say the number. <laughs> heavy hole- heavy hole podcast.com. Uh Big Will and Tom coming straight at you. And how many podcast uh, hosts am I going to go home tonight, Tom, and cry into my pillow um, at 400 BPMs over tonight because I'm missing them? Just one. Bing bong.